The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. As I've been mentioning, we are in the book of Acts, and we are going to be looking at this little section of Acts chapter 15 that Stuart just read. What I think is really interesting about Acts chapter 15, this section, is it kind of prompts this particular question. The whole chapter really is devoted to answering this particular question. But the question is this, what is the rule of the Christian life? Or to say it another way, what is our law? What is the rule of the Christian life? Or what is the law for the Christian? Maybe when I ask that question, some of you, it just immediately freaks you out. Maybe you had a, a harsh upbringing, you could come from a really legalistic background, and so any talk of Christian responsibility or duty or law or rule or standard makes you really, really nervous. You just get the heebie-jeebies just at the utterance of the word law. Ugh, just can't. It, it freaks me out. You say, we're not under law, we're under grace, of course. You say, Jesus came for those that were broken by the rules, right? That's your response to this question. Maybe for others of you, when we say, what is the standard or the rule or the law for the Christian, you start licking your lips because you're like, preacher, I got a whole bunch of things that I would like for you to address this morning. A whole lot of things that I've been thinking about that the church needs to hear. These folks need to be confronted with these particular truths. You got a whole laundry list of this and this and this and this. These are the standards for the Christians. So how do you answer that? What, what is our law? What is the rule, we might say, of the Christian faith? What, are, what, what is required of us now that we belong to Jesus? Now, I'm not asking how we become saved, because the answer from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, is that we are saved by grace through faith, so that nobody can, can boast about it, right? We're not saved by works. Instead of asking, what are we on the hook to do as those who belong to Jesus? You with me? Now, one word, whether we can answer this question, one word, it's this. Actually, hang tight. We'll get there in a second. All right, the book of Acts is the story of the earliest Christians, starting with the apostles, who were commissioned and empowered by the resurrected Lord Jesus, who gives his very spirit to his people to go about making him known amongst the nations. And what we see as the book unfolds is that everywhere the church goes, people are converted. The spirit moves. Jesus brings people into fellowship with himself and with his people. Chapters 1 through 7 focus in on the mission in Jerusalem. We have the ascension of Jesus. He pours out his promised spirit. As his spirit infiltrates the disciples and the gospel advances, people come to faith, come to know Christ. Jesus is known and made known. In chapters 8 through 11, the mission expands beyond just Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And a bunch of unexpected characters start getting welcomed into the fold, start believing, start receiving the Holy Spirit. And then in chapters 13, 14, and 15 that we've been looking at most recently, Begins Paul's first missionary journey where the gospel is first taken to the ends of the earth. People leave their home area and their, their homestead to go with the purpose, the express purpose of evangelizing, of telling people about Jesus. But of course, this isn't a conflict-free, idyllic kind of paradise of a story, right? We've seen over and over again that there's all sorts of opposition to the church. Most immediately in chapter 14, Paul teaches that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. That Paul himself lives that out as he's stoned and left for dead. But there's also challenges that are, that are like kind of good challenges that come with the advance of the gospel. Challenges brought about by good things. 
There's new growth. There's this explosive advance of the gospel. There's a bunch of new people that are welcomed in. And with this explosive growth, changes and challenges emerge. And if we think about our church, I mean, we know this to be the case firsthand, that sometimes good things bring about challenges. Let me give you an example. So we planted this church back in 2014, and one of the things I love to do is look around the room and, and look at your faces and remember when you first came to be a part of Ridgewood, where we were located, where we were gathering. Some of you, you know, we were at the Spinning Jenny, and I always joke, you needed a tetanus shot in order to enter the Spinning Jenny, but that's where we worshiped for a season. We were at Chandler Creek. Greg, I remember you vacuuming the kids' area at Chandler Creek Elementary School. I, I, I can remember where we were in all of these different locations when everybody kind of joined the party. But one thing that, uh, one particular challenge that's kind of reared its, I don't want to say ugly head because that's a good thing, is, is what do we do with all of these children, <laughs> right? So, shouldn't say reared its ugly head. You guys understand the point that I'm making. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a community group leader huddle where our community group leaders come together to kind of work through issues. And the big question was, what do we do with kids during community group? And, and, and as I reflect on that, I mean, I think about when we first planted in 2014, and there was a total of three children that were a part of our church. That just wasn't an issue back then. That wasn't a challenge. That wasn't a question that even dawned on us. It was like community groups. It's going to be great. Let's do groups and homes. What could possibly go wrong with that? And now the, our houses are like a crawling with children everywhere we look and in all of our community groups. Sometimes growth brings about challenges. We see this in Acts chapter 6. We're told that as the Hellenistic folks are being welcomed into the church, the widows are neglected in the food distribution, and so the Spirit leads the church to raise up deacons. The office of deacons is in response to growth that brings about challenges. And then we see this again in Acts chapter 15. On the heels of Paul's first missionary journey, there's this amazing work of God amongst these like pure, undistilled pagan Gentiles. They come to faith in Jesus. And then really significant challenges begin to rear their ugly heads. How are these Gentiles to be welcomed into the faith? I mean, Jesus said, all nations, go make disciples of all nations. The nations are starting to be discipled, and it's kind of like, what does this look like practically? I mean, Jesus is Jewish. He is the Jewish Messiah. He emerges out of the Jewish world and the Jewish story, operating in Jewish categories. And so a really natural question then is how are Christians to relate to Judaism? By extension, are are Gentiles expected to adhere to the law of Moses, the law that was given by God through Moses that all Jews seek to adhere and and sort of abide by? Should Gentiles observe this law? And most specifically, should Gentiles be circumcised in order to become Christians? That is the issue that appears in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 some from Judea are teaching the brothers, and they've, they've been teaching in Antioch, and it causes this controversy. They're teaching the brothers that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. In other words, access into the, the benefits of the new covenant are only available to you if you go through the door of the law of Moses. Thankfully, Aaron showed us last week that this challenge, though, it's, it's brought about by new growth and it, it prompts the coming together of the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem meets together with the apostles and these leaders and they come to the conclusion that, no, to be saved, to be a part of the new covenant community of Jesus is by grace through faith. It's hard to overstate how important this moment was, not just in the history of the church, but in the history of planet Earth. 
This is the Spirit leading these early Christians to the understanding that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not on the basis of works, not on, your, your ba- not on basis to your, your proximity to Moses or your behavior and obedience to Moses. It's by grace. Listen to Peter's words in chapter 15, starting in verse 7. They are just chef's kiss. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He says, look, 10 years ago, when 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 my ministry just got rolling, Peter says, 10 years ago, we started to see how the Holy Spirit was being given to the Gentiles. Remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was given to us? Well, this amazing thing happened because God started doing that same thing amongst the Gentiles. And it's not on the basis of anything but faith, belief. Verse 10, now therefore, this is kind of concerning the question about should you be circumcised? Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He said, why are we asking if Gentiles must obey the law to be saved? Because Lord knows you and your mom and them couldn't do it, right? And so it'd be, it, it's not just unfair, it is unjust and dishonest of us to expect the Gentiles to have to do that very same thing. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved by great, uh, excuse me, be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Imagine w- when you were back in high school. Whatever subject was your jam, history, science, math, whatever. Whatever, whatever it was that you prided yourself in. Uh, imagine that you take a test and you are completely confident that you crushed it. You just completely eradicated that bad boy. It stood no chance against you. You finished, you're the first ones done with it. You took this test, you crushed it. The next day or the next time you have that class, the teacher comes in and announces that the class did so poorly, she had to grade on a curve. Anybody have that that experience before? She announces that she had to grade on a curve. And you smugly, you think to yourself, good thing for those students that she graded on a curve. Good thing she is gracious. Because people like me almost spoiled it for the rest of them. But presumably everybody else did so poorly that they needed the extra points. Only to find out, when you got your test back, you needed grace too. Ever happened to you? What Peter's saying and what these Jews are realizing, and th- this is the real offense of the gospel. It's not the fact that the Gentiles were welcomed in. It's the fact that Jews and Gentiles both need grace. We are all just as bad off as everybody else. One of the things Aaron helpfully pointed out last week, the offense of the gospel is that royalty Queen Elizabeth, God rest her soul, King Charles himself needs the same amount of grace as the pauper on the street and vice versa. That's just the way this thing works. And that's the the offensive conclusion that Peter and the rest of the company in Jerusalem arrive at. Wait a second. We, they needed grace. We need grace. The only way we can be saved, it's not through walking through the right rules and navigating the customs with dexterity and excellence. It's by grace. By grace through faith, we're saved. So what happens in the rest of chapter 15? 
They've arrived at this conclusion that all people are welcomed into the, to the family of God by grace. All people everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, period, triple stamp that double stamp by faith in Jesus alone, not inheritance, uh, adherence to the law. So what's next? In our passage today, they resolved to let the decision be made known back up in Antioch. And they plan to send a letter to these Christians in the surrounding regions with this spirit-led decision. Let's read again in verse 22, chapter 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, after having kind of hashed all of this out, with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. By the way, the reason that we have this disambiguation, Judas uh, called Barsabbas, is to be clear that it's a different Judas than is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. And also, just this is, this is just a, a random kind of aside, one of the ways that we can point to the New Testament documents as being legitimate is how often this actually takes place. Is that if you're making a story up, you come up with cooler names than Judas, especially for an influential person in the early church who happens to have the same name as the guy who betrayed the Lord and Savior, Jesus, right? So that's actually one bit of evidence, kind of a small detail that helps build a cumulative case for the trustworthiness of these scriptures. Keep reading. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, referencing those that were demanding circumcision, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Right, so the situation arises, we felt like we needed to address it, so we're, we're writing this letter to communicate our conclusion to you, and we're sending not just Paul and Silas back, but we're actually sending two guys that we love as a statement of, of the legitimacy of this letter. In other words, Paul and Barnabas didn't just make this letter up, we're sending these guys as additional witnesses to the truth of what took place. Hear then what the letter says, verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, wait a second. I thought the whole point was we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. Why is it that they're now saying that they're, they're laying this burden on them? There's requirements. I thought the whole point was that there weren't requirements, that it was just faith that we entered. I thought they just decided you didn't have to adhere to the law of Moses, that the Spirit led them to the glorious news that all people are saved by grace through faith. So are they changing their tune? Is that what's taking place here? Well, the answer is no. I mean, Aaron demonstrated this last week. The Jerusalem council led by the Spirit is recognizing that the Gentile brothers are indeed brothers. They're Christians. But there's still this kind of pesky reality that the Jewish customs and laws created a barrier culturally that would have prevented Gentiles and Jews from having full fellowship with one another. Specifically, table fellowship. And we're Baptists, and so we understand the deep importance of table fellowship. We're, you know, coming together over ham and barbecue in the New Covenant, Right? And it's not only table fellowship that would have been impeded, but it actually would have been a barrier 
for other Jews to convert from Judaism into Christianity. And so the council gives the Gentiles the glorious news. You're saved by grace. No need to adhere to circumcision and the law of Moses. But then issues a call, a call to lay down rights and willingly abide by these requirements. You hear that? They issue a call to willingly lay down their rights and abide by these requirements. Specifically, to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled food, and sexual immorality. The point is that these issues would have, uh, these particular issues would have prevented fellowship. And, and so what the Jerusalem Council is doing is saying, Gentiles, lay down your rights so that fellowship can be had between the brothers that are both Jews and Gentiles. Again, Aaron mentioned this last week, and if, if you look through these list of requirements, it's obvious that one of these is not like the others. Three of these are obviously ritual issues, but the fourth is not just a ritual issue. It's one that kind of persists, and reflection on the rest of Scripture and reflection on nature would indicate that this is more than just a ceremonial or a ritual piece. Likely what we're to understand here is that Gentiles lived in such sexual chaos that there would be no, there, there, would, there has to be some kind of movement and, and change to be made here in order to have fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. And so in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council is calling Christians to lay aside their rights for the sake of Jewish brothers. They aren't being given, the, the, they're not giving these things as a requirement under the law of Moses. That's exactly what they determined they aren't to do. Rather, we get a peek into the law that is binding and operative in the life of the Christian. There is a law beneath these requirements, beneath this burden that the Jerusalem Council gives, hovering beneath all of this so as to not impede fellowship with our brothers. And here's our question. What is our law? Christian, are you ready? It's one word. Here it is. Love. Love. The law for the Christian is love. And though it's not explicitly stated in these requirements given at the Jerusalem Council, it is easy to see how love and the grip that Jesus' love has on them informs the call for these Gentiles to show love by laying down their rights and willingly giving themselves to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures from the New Testament. John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, And this commandment we have from him, from Jesus, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Or Paul the Apostle writing in Romans chapter 13 verse 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul again in Galatians chapter 6, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or Jesus again in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. A lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or like the greatest of the Christmas songs says, O Holy Night, truly he taught us to love one another. His what? His law is love and his gospel is peace. So what is the one word that sums up the duty of the Christian in every circumstance? Love. We're called to love. And you hear that and you start thinking about it and you're like, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Because you think about what the scriptures tell us. The scripture says that the Father is merciful and abounding and steadfast love. That for God the Father so loved the world that he sends his son Jesus. Or you think about Jesus' love, his death on the cross for sinners. What greater love hath any man than this? That he laid down his life for his friends. Or in Romans chapter 5, the Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. And so it starts to make sense. You start thinking about it. The triune God is the God of love. We're the people of the triune God. Therefore, we're people of love. We're chips off the old block. If we're people of Jesus, we are people of love. We are so constrained by the love of Jesus that we are people of love ourselves. And I've used this example before, but, but I just love how, um, no pun intended, I, I really like how much, uh, how, how well it illustrates this point. But if you've seen the movie Les Mis, are you familiar with Les Mis? Wolverine, at the beginning, is this thief. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say his name in the movie, so we're calling him Wolverine. Wolverine is this thief, right? And he's this, he's this petty criminal, and there's this priest that offers for Wolverine to stay with him. And Wolverine's staying with him, and in the middle of the night, he steals a couple of golden candlesticks, silver candlesticks. Uh, he's eventually found out by the police, and when they bring Wolverine back to the priest that he stole from, the priest says, no, those candlesticks are his. I gave them to him. And that, that grace, that forgiveness, that undeserved, unmerited favor and mercy that he shows to him cast a shadow on the rest of the movie. Wolverine is completely constrained by the grace that was shown to him, and every encounter is now colored by grace for him. There's an interesting contrast between Gladiator and Wolverine because Gladiator has experienced grace and he knows grace and he's been given grace and Wolverine is just justice all the way down and it drives him mad. And so for Christians, this is our story. The candlesticks were yours the whole time. You have been forgiven. And we are now called and constrained by the love that was shown to us to show love to others. What's more, and I love that we sing grace that is greater than all our sin. Because it's not just a grace that is, that, is, that is great enough to forgive you. Listen, it is a grace that is potent enough to displace pettiness and resentment and replace it with love. The Spirit indwells us and gives us the very love that He possesses. And so we are bound by this law of Christ. The Jerusalem Council writes, and they say, good news. You're not bound by the law of Moses, but here is what we are calling you to do. Love. Love your Jewish brothers by being willing to sacrifice your freedoms that might inhibit fellowship. Love. That's the law for you and I. In one sense, we hear this and it's like, it's really easy. The Christian call is love. That's our MO. And there's only two scenarios that we're required to love when we want to and when we don't want to, right? That's very straightforward, very easy. But in another sense, this is actually a really difficult call, isn't it? Have you ever tried to love? Have you ever tried to love someone that is unlovable? 
that does not naturally elicit love from you. For one thing, love isn't always straightforward and simple. It's not always clear what the loving thing to do, you know, in any, any given situation is. And sometimes the loving thing isn't always the thing that feels loving. In fact, one challenge in our time is actually clarifying, when we talk about Christian love, clarifying what we mean by this. Because the Spirit gives us a more complete, whole, robust kind of love that is so much bigger than the flimsy, virtue-signaling kind of limited notions of love and affirmation we have culturally. Love is tough because it demands things from us. And if we're talking about the law of Christ and our lives being patterned after the love of Christ, I mean, what was Christ's love for you? It's worth really thinking about what this means, that our law is love. I mean, by definition, love is to self-sacrifice for the well-being of someone who is not me. Love is fundamentally self-donating, self-giving, and it's often unreciprocated and often unappreciated. Love is the adoption and embrace of burdens that are not your own, that belong to somebody else, willingly. Compelled by Jesus, who did the very same thing for you who owned your cause, who adopted and embraced your burden of sin when he did not have to. You know, I read this week from someone who has personal contact with the people of Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. The parents of the victims of the shooting raised money to pay for the funeral of the shooter. What could possibly be behind that? Love is the call on the life of the Christian. And in Antioch, the call was to abstain from certain practices that would have stood in the way of fellowship. Let's keep reading. Verse 30. I love the response of the Christians at Antioch. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers uh, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Occasionally, the stories in Acts ends with these little kind of happy ending bookends. And this is one such happy ending. The church in Antioch receives the letter. They read and they rejoice at the news. They're welcomed in. But also can't help but wonder if they're rejoicing at the privilege that it is to show love to these Jewish brothers. We will happily abstain from those things because we're brothers, because we're part of the same new covenant together. Judas and Silas were told to spend time encouraging, strengthening the saints with many words. Then they're sent off back home in peace while Paul and Barnabas remain feasting with them on the word of the Lord and fellowship together. It's so good. But let's ask this of ourselves. and Let's think kind of parallel about the situation in Acts. There's no such thing as a Christian in a vacuum, right? To be a Christian is to necessarily exist in Christian fellowship, like it or not. And so the question is, what kind of demand is Christian love making on you in the present? What kind of demand is Christian love making on you in the present? Is there anything unloving in you right now that is preventing fellowship with the saints? Are there cultural issues that stand in the way of fellowship? Are there things that you can abstain from to foster fellowship with a particular believer? Don't think in the abstract. I mean, think about specific situations. What demand is Christian love making on you? 
Are you harboring bitterness towards a brother or sister in Christ? Deserved or undeserved bitterness? Is there unforgiveness in your heart? Is there resentment because somebody has been blessed in ways that you haven't been blessed? How could you put on love to people that you resent, that you are holding a grudge against, that you were bitter towards? What about Christian love and our possessions? What what does Christian love demand on us as it relates to our stuff? Is Jesus inviting you to be generous or hospitable, to open your tight-fisted grip on these things for the sake of others? What about other relationships close to home? What about the church you grew up in? What does Christian love look like towards them? Many of us have have had background in Christian churches, and many of us really struggle with having an unloving posture towards the saints that invested in us, or even pride that exists in our heart that is standing in the way of Christian fellowship with saints that we feel like we've grown beyond. How does Christian love require you to act towards them? What about your family, your flesh and blood family, the people you're forced to do Easter lunches with? Christian love begins with those in closest proximity to us. What about your parents? We're a young church, and many of us are still learning how to relate to our parents as adults. And I promise you, every one of us have been deeply wounded by our parents. And if you're a parent, you are present tense wounding your children. And we just got to understand that and wrap our minds around that. Maybe we've grown up in the glass shattered years ago and we realized they're not perfect, but you are here because of them. What does Christian love look like to your parents now. Flawed and messed up and as backwards as they might be, what does Christian love look like to them? What about your spouse? You're in a hard marriage. You are on the hook to love them, friend. Like, even if we eliminate the fact that you're married from the equation, if they're a Christian brother or sister, you are on the hook to love them on the basis of your faith in Christ together, right? You are bound by the love of Jesus to love them. What is Christian love inviting you to do in your marriage? What about children, maybe adult children? Recognize that there's parents in the room who have children who have chosen lives that are very different than the life you would have chosen for them. How does Christian love bear down on this relationship, even those relationships for you? It's worth really reflecting on how the incomparable love of Jesus shown to you, to you, specifically you, thinking through how that love compels your love to others. And and anytime you talk about Christian love, I recognize that there is a temptation for this to sound so trite. And if if you hear that this morning, man, I I just want to encourage you, what we're talking about is stuff that exists, it's in the soul of the world, if you understand what I mean. I mean, this is what it's about, ultimately. This is our call, is is to see the love that Jesus gave to us to recognize how impossible love can feel in some of these relationships, and to recognize how complex and and difficult it is to know how to love, but to seek to obey the Lord Jesus and to live like the Lord Jesus, making this our own because he made us his own. What is Christian love compelling you to do? Let me also ask, how can you rejoice at this calling? Like the Christians at Antioch, rejoicing at the good news that they aren't bound by the law of Moses, but also rejoicing at the privilege to embody the Lord Jesus by laying aside their rights for the Jewish brothers and sisters. How can you rejoice at the call to love as Christ has loved? Now, at the end of our service, at the end of this teaching time, I should say, we always take some time to pray. And I want to encourage us to respond and pray in a couple of different ways. 
First, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want you to understand that you need grace. And I say that as one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I need grace as much as anyone. You need grace as much as anyone. You need forgiveness for your sins. You have done wrong and you know it. And the good news that Christians go on about is this, that Jesus has died for those sins. He was punished for you so that you could be reconciled to God. And then, watch this, be unleashed for love in the world. An otherworldly kind of love that empowers forgiveness, even forgiveness for shooters. And as we've said, this is not the basis of works. It's not about giving enough or doing enough or obeying enough or tap dancing the right dance or whatever. It's about tapping out and saying to Jesus, you win. I belong to you. I have have faith in your way of life, and I, I want you to have your way in my life, Lord Jesus. Just ask, could you pray that now? Could you ask the Holy Spirit to show you the meaning of these words? If you'd like to talk, I'm sure the person who brought you this morning would love to talk with you. Love to talk with you out in the lobby after worship. If you're a Christian this morning, would you ask the Holy Spirit to show you those dark, resentful, bitter, unloving corners of your heart and ask him to illuminate it with his love? Ask that his very love shown to you, that he would work it out in you. Would you ask the Spirit to give you clarity on what it looks like in the situations that you're thinking through right now? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you clarity on what love looks like there. And then would you bravely ask the Spirit for opportunities to love? We love because Christ first loved us. That is the story of our faith. That is the law of our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as the king of all things, and you are just as real and alive and near us as you were in the pages of these scriptures, as you were for these saints. You were just as active as you were in the stories of the scriptures. And we pray today that you would hear our prayers and that you would speak to us and that your spirit would move in us and and, and drive us to action. We pray for your help and knowing and having the wisdom to know what love looks like in these different situations, but we pray most of all, Lord Jesus, that we would be constrained by love with with a, a white hot freshness for what you have done for us that we cannot get over. I pray for my friends who are here this morning who are not yet believers. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes so they could see the glory of the good news of the gospel. We pray that you would make Ridgewood Church a church known for its love. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.